I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we are joined by Daisy Cousins. Welcome, Daisy. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. You are, of course, a, a political opinion commentator. You're a contributor to Sky News and author, and you have your own YouTube channel. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very pleased to be here. It's probably going to freak the internet out because they're often uh, having a go at both of us at the same time and we're in the same frame at the moment. But uh, for our viewers who don't know, the first time I met Daisy was actually on set for the Gary Hargrave show and she very kindly came to my rescue when I got my hair sprayed, hair caught in a microphone. I don't know if you remember that or not. Oh, I think I do. I do remember that. I remember we met in the studio, but yes, I think there was a little, there was a little incident with the hair, which is uh, very easy to happen. I've I've had mics get caught in like the lace on my dress at some point, you know, uh, and the poor liaisons desperately they're trying to get the mic out to put give it to the next person, but not wanting to tear my clothes. So I just sit there and go, I'm really sorry. So yes, mishaps with microphones can certainly happen. <laughs> Yes, the things that boys don't have a problem with, like the duct tape holding a microphone being ripped off your back in one go between sets. Yeah, that stuff, that happens. Uh, <laughs> but you are quite a controversial figure online, mostly because you're a female conservative and the left absolutely hate that. You're not allowed to go outside your gender quota box. But particularly with you, you used to write for feminist magazines and uh, that upset some a lot. What happened, Daisy? Why aren't you still writing for feminist publications? Well, it was. It's interesting. There's sort of been a narrative spun around my sort of previous body of work. I never. Um, I used to write for a women's magazine, and it was very specifically a women's lifestyle magazine. So it wasn't a sort of political rag like Mamma Mia, but by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it was my first ever writing gig. You know, I just I'd had a bit of an existential crisis, as you do in your mid twenties, and I thought, oh God, I. I need it for the theatrical thing. I'm not having a good time. I need to find something else. Um, so, yeah, I, st I started writing and um, I saw this freelance writing gig for this literally just advertises the women's magazine, Women's Lifestyle. And I thought I could write about women's lifestyle. That sounds like fun. So I sent in a little kind of audition piece and they, they loved it and, and they hired me. Um, but I mostly wrote about like travel and, and you know, sex and, and lipstick and, and, and things and celebrities and, and things like that with a bit of kind of, um, opinion commentary on like my life and and society and stuff like that. So I, I never sort of was a I get I got pinned as this sort of oh this feminist writer who's flipped because apparently she's making so much money and I'm like honey you have no idea. Um, but I as writing for a women's magazine 
inherently lends itself towards a bit of kind of girl power stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a women's mag. And there were, I used to, uh, for a long time there, call myself a feminist, um, more from a kind of libertarian choice freedom um, perspective, but this was before I knew anything about the culture war. So I didn't know about third and fourth wave feminism. I didn't know what it had turned into. I was just like, oh, feminism, equality and choice. Cool. That sounds good. I'll call myself that. Uh, but when you are writing for women's magazines, you can kind of go down the rabbit hole a bit when you're researching blogs and it leads you to places like Jezebel, uh, you know, and Mamma Mia and um, all of those websites that we know and dislike now. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, I did develop while I was there some quite unfortunate uh, feminist-ish views that I really would not stand by now simply by being in that kind of environment. And I was the most political person on staff. There were only about four of us. Um, but it, it, it's it's interesting how that can kind of infiltrate. If you're looking at women's issues and women's popular culture and women's lifestyle, um, that inherently has totally seeped through the culture. Um, and it was, I was always sort of vaguely suspicious of it, though. I was suspicious of things like the gender pay gap. I'm like, how can that be a thing? Like, do you know what I mean? But because it was just there in my face all the time, and also I was friends with a bunch of lefties, they were all actors, like you get totally saturated in the culture. So while I've always been naturally fiscally conservative, I've had raging fights with my lefty friends over, over things like, you know, tax and small government and things. Um, this feminism just totally seeped through that. Um, and I made a YouTube video about this a while ago, just explaining that journey. And I tell you what, um, you become so resentful of the world when you're in that environment and, and you feel like that no matter how hard you try or, or how, how whatever you do to succeed, you're never going to be able to re uh, reach your full potential because you're a woman and it's a man's world and blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's a terrible way to feel. So it wasn't until um, I left that women's magazine, not on good terms, <laughs> which is a, which is another story altogether that I probably won't tell. Um, and I started, you know, educating myself with, um, you know, different sources. Like I started looking at Ben Shapiro and Miley Yiannopoulos and people like that, that I realized I had been duped. I'd been duped quite literally by these feminist blogs on things like, you know, the pay gap and, and DV statistics and all of that. Um, and it was just the most liberating thing ever. And I, I was like, oh, okay, so my niggling suspicions were correct. I don't actually need to think and feel these things, even though it's saturated everywhere in the culture. Um, and I finally just felt like I'd, I, I'd settled on something good. But the thing is, um, when people say, oh, well, you were a feminist and you wrote for a feminist magazine and, and then you, um, oh, you just flipped because of money. It's like I took a 100% pay cut when I left that women's magazine. And I did not get paid for a single piece of my conservative writing or television or speeches or anything until like late 2018, which was when yeah. my YouTube channel started to actually generate some income. So I did everything for free, except I think for one speech, I think I made $300 in mid 2017, uh, but, that, but that was it. So I didn't get paid for a single piece of commentary for that long. I did it all for free. I'm glad I can make a living out of it now. I'm very grateful. But uh, anyone who says that people leave feminist commentary to make money as conservative commentators has absolutely no clue of the financial reality of that. Absolutely not. And on that note, please donate to Daisy's Patreon account. You can follow her on YouTube and find all the links there. And shout your coffee on Kofi if you enjoy watching this video because there is no money 
in the conservative media, all the money goes toward the left and all of our public money, of course, goes toward funding left-wing blogs and left-wing campaigns. But it's funny, you should say that once you write something online for a publication, the left will hound you with that forever. I know I went on one channel to talk about bushfires and apparently because of that channel, it, it makes me responsible for the New Zealand massacre, which happened, you know, years before I even appeared on that channel. That's oh. what the left does. They follow you around with whatever you say for the rest of time. But uh, what I was interested in finding out is what possessed you to throw yourself into the culture wars because for a conservative woman, it's not just a, a fun cult that you join that the left have where they all have a great time and they all support each other. If you join the culture wars on the right, you are going to become a figure to be attacked and abused 24 hours a day online and it never ends. And so it takes a, a, a fair amount of um, thought and care to enter that public environment. Did you fall into it by accident thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with it? Or did you make a conscious choice to join this culture war? Um, oh, totally by accident. Totally by accident. Um, and it was it was interesting. Like, I started writing sort of about conservative politics in 2016 and, and 2015. And that's the, that's the, what people don't know, these feminists don't know. While I was writing for this women's publication, I was also um, writing just a couple of our, um, articles for Quadrant magazine, which is, you know, a, a very conservative, uh, wonderfully classy publication. I'm a huge fan of Quadrant. I was writing these 4,000 word essays on ISIS brides from a, a very non-left perspective, as you can imagine. I feel very strongly about that. So it's like, well, no, I was also writing for a conservative magazine at the time. You know what I mean? Um, so I kind of delved into that world and I ended up... Um, the lovely people at Quadra, lovely gentleman by the name of John O'Sullivan, who was the editor at the time, um, he asked me to be the editorial assistant there, um, just sort of part-time, which was a, um, you know, a, a little bit of extra, tiny, tiny, tiny bit of extra um, expenses money, but great experience. And I, I got to meet some cool people. Um, and he introduced me uh, to Rowan Dean, of course, who's the editor of The Spectator, because um, he liked my writing and he thought, um, oh, you, you'd write some good stuff for the Spectator. I'll, I'll put you in contact. And um, yeah, I start, so I loved Rowan. Rowan, he's just one of the most wonderful people in the world. And um, I started writing a couple of articles for the Spectator, but they were these really, um, again, for free. None, none of this make any money out of these people. <laughs> and um, I, I wrote in this sort of accidentally very kind of narky, snarky style about SJWs and the regressive left. And it was all of the things that I had felt so frustrated um, in sort of, you know, between sort of 2012 and 2014, which was when I would have these raging fights with my actor friends about politics on Facebook. Um, it was all the stuff that frustrated me about them and their behavior and their total intolerance for people who disagreed with them and a total unwillingness to listen, all the things that you and I talk about, Alexandra, all the things we know. Um, I wrote these really satirical, snarky, quite controversial um, like I remember I read back to myself a little while ago the first article I ever wrote for The Spectator, um, which was called The Plight of the Middle Class White Girl. And I thought, oh, my God, I gave everyone a serve in that article. Everyone got a serve in that. Um, every group conceivable got a serve because I was so frustrated. But people really liked them and they thought they were funny. And um, so I thought, well, I like doing this. People like it. I'll, I'll keep doing it. And then, um, very long story short, um, the people at Q&A um, got a whiff of some of the stuff that I was writing. 
And um, they also heard a little radio interview that I did um, with lovely Tom Switzer on ABC Radio. And they asked me to come on on Q&A. And so that was my, well, this was when just after Trump had won, so the left was in like an existential crisis. And so they were looking for sort of new types of people to put on the show. And yeah, that was the, my first TV gig. And, you know, the rest is history. So it totally, totally by accident. Yes, the left love to put clips of your Q&A up online continuously. Badly photoshopped is one of their favourite activities. Uh, oh, but yes, I haven't seen them do that. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, I do it all the time. And they send it to me because they call me Discount Daisy. I'm like, okay, but, like, we're not the same. On the left, it seems to be if you're a woman and a conservative, you're identical to every other conservative woman. We're quite different. I mean, we're very, we're very different, and I, um, I really resent the fact that they call you that because, um, it's unbelievably rude, and also they, they used to do that with, um, me and Sydney Watson as well. They used to call her Dime Store Daisy, like, which I, it's, I'm like, uh, she has a bigger following than me. If anything, I'm Dime Store Sydney. Like, you, you know what I mean? Well, let's um, remember that, but I don't mind because Aldi is a very successful. Uh, chain it might be cheap but you know I, you get around it's fine um, I, I but, prefer yeah. Aldi to be honest I prefer their products but um like oh what 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 I hate about that notion and they they used to try to do it with me in Sydney they try to pit us against each other um on Twitter and Sydney and I like where we like each other <laughs> there was you know, no way that was gonna we were going to allow that to happen but the attitude they have is that the views of millennial conservative women are so outlandish and and so out of field and and so preposterous that there is only room for one at a time in the public commentary sphere. And they actually would say that, oh, there's there's not room for more than one of you, Daisy. And I'm like, what what are you talking about? There are like mil tons and tons of feminist millennial that is commentators. The most sexist thing that anybody can say. Only one woman woman can be there. That's because we're identity boxes to the left and we have to represent women's ideas rather than our own. Like, I don't like talking about women's issues. It doesn't interest me. I did the mm. whole Spice Girl things as a kid. You and I grew up at the same time. We did, that was our women's power thing. That was about as far as it went. But I prefer to talk about geopolitics and economics and liberty. But you get brought on, people want to talk to you about feminist issues. I'm like, I really, I don't care. I don't want to talk about it. It's not my mm. thing. Go and find a feminist. It, I, I don't know. Or go find a dude who likes talking about it. But uh, yeah. please ask me about China. Guys, plenty of guys who like talking about women's issues, like from from all different perspectives. They're rather good at it. Get a guy. That's I much more interesting. I'm fascinated by women's issues than we are. We're like, we live it. We don't want to talk about it. It's no. Every day from exactly. Uh, no, it's funny to talk about um, getting your gig uh, from Rowan. He's also the first person who was brave enough or crazy enough to put me in print. And you really have, really have to thank the people who take a chance on new voices because it's very difficult to get a shoe in the door in this quite closed world of political opinion. I don't know if you found the same thing, but on the left, they bring in literally everybody off the street to commentate and talk. But on the right or in the centre, it's quite a small little posse of people. I think that's because they've been made paranoid for, by criticism by the way the left attacks everybody who's on every show and so i think it's made networks and publications afraid to try new things yeah it's it's interesting i mean i was really unbelievably lucky like i was i was so lucky um with the the sequence of events like you know i i was introduced to the right people um you know i i you know 
was I was lucky in the fact that people liked my work and because people could have really hated what I was writing I was like oh thank god okay I wrote, people like it I'll contribute so I was lucky in that respect and I was really lucky with Q&A unbelievably lucky with Q&A um it was a, a a small window of time where something big had happened which was that Trump had won the US election in 2016 um unexpectedly the left was having a, a crisis of their souls because they had been they rudely realized that not everyone agreed with them uh which i think really knocked their socks off um there was a there was a vacuum there uh for different types of conservatives it was when Milo was very very famous and there was no sort of niche there in Australia that had been filled by him and I was sort of saying in a similar this is before you know before Milo augmented himself to the point of not yes. you know you know what I'm talking about um this was during his <laughs> university campus tour there was there was room for me there was a small niche in a small vacuum of time and I managed to get sucked into it um and then the niche closed so I, like I look back and I just you know count my lucky stars um but it is it is very difficult to get in and um uh, hello from the other side of after the niche is closed uh that's Pardon? that's over here to me hello from the other side after the niche is closed hi i've been here for only a year so i don't know you're doing you're doing pretty well for yourself though i think i you know i mean i think you're carving out um a nice brand for yourself you know you've been on sky a few times you're writing for the spectator is which is great you know you've got I, just annoy people. I annoy the left online i pick fights i like the confrontation i like to irritate them with their own ridiculousness and i think i think you get a kick out of it too because you do go after the left quite a bit in your particularly your youtube films which we'll get to in a second um mm. but i've noticed you and i have been involved in the online world for a long time um and we grew up with it more than for example our politicians have do you think that social media, which has been rolling along for a long time and driving the narrative, did that creep up on mainstream media? Because I know that a lot of commentators of a different generation to us like to dismiss Twitter and Facebook and the whole the whole online idea as being just a sewer and just garbage and irrelevant to the political discourse. But Twitter has been driving the cultural and social narrative for at least five years now. And there's nothing that the mainstream media can do about it. It's now become front and center. Did they miss that arrival of this new cultural revolution? And is it sort of too late for them to do anything about it now? Yeah, the online world um, and the way it relates to the legacy media is 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 interesting. I mean, you see some journalists, like you know, the blue ticks on Twitter, um, have sort of they've taken to it really well um mainly because they all like to kind because twitter is a lefty safe space twitter is a lefty safe space and most of most journalists are are left are left wing we know this um you know they 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 congregate there and they affirm each other's opinions and they retweet each other and they and they really kind of you know la 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 la, la. so i think in terms of of twitter um there was rallying against it from as these sort of older commentators of a different generation they were very very snobbish about it um i think they're right when they say it's a sewer i think i hate twitter i think it is the the worst social media platform of all but as as you say it's it's where a lot of the culture war is fought and it, it's certainly like it's good for sort of you know breaking news things happening in real time etc uh but the the reality of the matter is though that it's not actually and i'm sure you'll agree with me it's not actually a reflection of public opinion um and and that is like in australia um i ran the numbers on this a couple of years ago in in 2018 
um, the Yellow Pages, they always release uh, a, a survey of who's on what social media platform. And from memory, about 87% of Australians use social media. And of that 87%, only 19% of them are on Twitter. So it's uh, most people like the biggest social media platform uh, was Facebook. And then it was like, like Instagram was up there, YouTube, and you kept going down, down, down the list. And somewhere below Pinterest was Twitter. Um, and that was those are the numbers in 2018. But Twitter gets this enormous amount of attention uh, because journalists are on it and politicians are on it. And because journalists are on it, rather than going around and doing vox pops to, uh, vox pops to people in the street to find out what people want, they just pull out tweets from random people and embed them in the articles, you know. Um, so it gets this sort of massive amount of public attention, but it's, uh, the, and there's, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like, you know, there are this amount of people on Twitter, but only, but like 10% of people do like 80% of the tweets. You, you know what I mean? It's something like that. So you get this, and a lot of them have like six accounts each. <laughs> so they make well, themselves. Well, I'm, I'm happy to fight you on this one because this is the point of difference between us. I think mm. you're right that Twitter is, uh, crap, particularly if you're receiving the brunt of abuse. I mean, that's not the only thing that Twitter does. If you're a political figure, you do see a different version of Twitter to its like its major its major functionality. But I think if we don't like Twitter, then perhaps we don't like society at large because when I look at Twitter, what we see is what people really think around the dinner table. What they say anonymously is often what they hold more true than what they say publicly. And so with Twitter, what we're seeing is, yes, you're right, it's left slanted. It has changed a little bit. It's no, nowhere near as left tilted as it was before, which is irritating the left even more. But from the perspective of the left, Twitter is showing us what these guys really think, and particularly what the younger generation has been taught to think and behave when they aren't being monitored by their name or publicly associated with their comments and thoughts. And what worries me is, when you study the revolutions of Europe and you see what Marxism does and how it behaves, the commentary on Twitter is quite similar to just before things went crazy with the European revolutions. And I worry that it's becoming mainstream. And so what was a Suro Twitter has emboldened the people who are online and they are now bringing that to the street, to their protest. I mean, what difference is there between a Marxist protest on the street and what they say online? Nothing. They're now putting it on posters. So my concern is that Twitter isn't, real life but what it's doing is shaping our politics shaping our politicians who then go and change the public narrative convince populations to alter their their thinking and their ideology mm. well no I, I i see your point you know in in terms of it's sort of what people really think you know what they say anonymously what they think around the dinner table or say yeah that that's a fair point but it, it's it's not a reflection of what most people think it's, it's a reflect in terms of sort of public opinion and you know how, how the public thinks and feels generally twitter is not a reflection of that and we see we see that in election results like you know obviously the the trump election in 2016 the U.S. election, even in in twenty twenty, I mean, if you'd thought that Twitter, you know, was real life, then Trump would have got like five votes, you know. But he's he got seventy four million votes, which is like many millions more than he did last time, and more than any other incumbent has had ever. So even that was a total contradiction of what was going on on Twitter. Uh, um, you know, the Australian election in twenty nineteen was a big one because the Twitterati was going on about how oh, you know, Morrison's toast, etc., leadership spill, blah 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 blah, and the the end the libs ended up winning it um so the the uk election was another one you know i mean jeremy corbyn's labor I think, absolutely I think, it might be a, 
So like what it, what it might be a reflection does. of the left though. Like do you think it might be a reflection of what the left of our generation think? Because I know because you gotta remember that Twitter is not a reflection of all society because not all society is on it. So you can only yeah. judge it by who's actually on it. And uh, we have to remember the older generations, they won't be voting forever. So I'm worried about what that says about the younger generations, of which it does seem to be quite an accurate reflection. If you look at universities, if you look at how the voting of just the young demographics go in elections, they are voting hard left and the green vote is rising and the Labor politics is pushing further and further to the left. So I think my point is more that you're right, it's not a reflection of the older generations and it's still the majority, but even our own elections are starting to, the margins are thinning and they are becoming more left. And we, even Morrison, he didn't win by the majority that he should have, considering how bad Shorten was. We've just watched WA fall off a cliff. You know, Victoria oh, is gone. We've got Queensland, which is, you know, they're embracing this idea of protectionism as far as a sort of communist-style cage existence. I think that's what I more meant is it's reflecting maybe the younger generations and what's coming out of universities. Perhaps it's an accurate reflection of what our kids are being taught. Well, yeah, if you want to apply it specifically to young people, then yeah, and <laughs> that is a, that's a huge worry. That uh, that I, I 100% agree with you on. And if you think of like the baby boomer generation, for instance, that's a really large voting block. Uh, like it's a, it's like the largest. I don't know if it's the largest, but it, it's it's really really large. Um, and that certainly, um, conservative party. Roman Bishop actually said this while while I was on Sky with her. She said conservative parties have a lot of trouble winning if they don't have that over sixty five vote. So what's contributing to a lot of conservative victories is the boomer generation, certainly, and um, some of the Gen Xs as well. But as you say, with young people, um, that I agree with you on. Uh, what we see on Twitter is sort of what's being pushed through universities um and it's extremely worrying because young people do tend to lean leftward they tend to vote leftward and um it infuriates me because they don't sort of do any sort of critical research and, and critical thinking for themselves they just buy you know what their teachers mm -hmm. sell them but like the conventionally sort of held wisdom and this is sort of worrying as well is that as people get older they grow more conservative i mean there's that saying that you know if you're not a socialist at 20 you don't have a heart but if you're still a socialist at 40 then you don't have a brain you know it, it's that kind of thing and you know in the past um as people have got older they've you know had their sort of socialist uni days they've got married they've had kids and they've realized how much tax they're paying um it drives them to be a bit more fiscally conservative but we're not really seeing that though with millennials i mean millennials particularly gen y um they're sort of you know in their late 20s early 30s now they're getting married they're getting jobs they're having kids and they're still voting leftwards particularly the women um so there's this real and and zoomers like gen z um uh, they're an interesting lot because they were projected to be the most conservative generation since the second world war um and you wouldn't think that to look at them um so but they tend to be, and I, again, I did a video on this a couple of years ago, and what I found was they actually tend to be quite nationalistic and fiscally conservative, but they're socially liberal uh, because that's how they've been brought up in this very progressive world where gender fluidity is very normalized in popular culture and they get it at school, et cetera, et cetera. And because, you know, social issues tend to be very emotional and, you know, you can really sell them that way, um, they can get totally swung on the social issues, particularly if you're demonizing conservative parties as sexist or hostile to, to other races, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's extremely concerning um, the way that young people are thinking and feeling right now. Um, and I sometimes 
despair at how to actually get through to them. I, sometimes I hope they'll maybe go on their own journey and figure it out for themselves, but I, I don't know. It, it's really pervasive. Yeah, no one's going to go on their own journey when they are coddled out of university and into the arms of social media where there's a reason that we see a protest every week or so put on by the left. It's because it keeps up interest. It keeps people feeling like they're part of the group. It's an activity to maintain, as I like to say, maintain the rage against their political opponents. And so we are watching kids go from being brought up online in their little safe spaces. I don't know if you ever were part of Tumblr, but Tumblr is the worst place for kids to grow up because it is the ultra left and they bully each other into extreme positions of left-wing viewpoints using entertainment and their and their TV shows as a mechanism to coerce their politics when they're young. Then they get to university and instead of being told, hey, you got to grow up now, that was all fun, but you're an adult and, you know, you can fail and you have to pass this. And instead of that, universities are making their condition worse and saying, yep, everything that Tumblr taught you is true. We're going to cuddle you, put you in a safe space. You know, you can be outraged and get marks and progress for being um, a victim. And then what happens, they leave university and then social media and, and these protest rallies, they just keep them going in the left-wing group. And so when Labor thought they were raising a generation of Greens who would then vote left, we're seeing those green kids go even further green and drag the Labor Party across to the left with them. And to be honest, I think the Liberals are, are heading that way as well because they think they're chasing the votes. Yeah, it's um, one of the big mistakes that Conservatives parties make uh, when they get elected is to get elected and then try to uh, capitulate to the left. Uh, and it is, it's very easy for Conservatives to make that mistake because the left are really noisy. They're really, really noisy, uh, particularly now, you know, as you've so rightly put it, with Twitter. Um, and they dictate culture through the media and through social media and through universities, et cetera. So conservative politicians, they hear all this noise um, and they're so desperate for people, not all of them, but they're so desperate for people to like them. You know, I'm looking at you, Malcolm Turnbull. Um, you know, they they will try to move leftwards and sort of apologize all over, them for, uh, all over themselves for all sorts of things. Um, and there's two things wrong with that. One is that the people that they're trying to make like them will never like them. They will never like them. They will they think that they're racist, horrible white supremacists. They never they could literally cure cancer and the left would never like them. Um, and the other uh, problem is that conservatives elect conservative parties and conservative politicians to behave in a conservative way. So if they get into power by fighting for conservative principles, but then get there and sort of freak out and think, oh, well, the media is going to say this, so I better, you know, just give a little bit of ground. Well, sorry, they're going to lose at the next election because the conservatives will not vote for them because they, they, they didn't act in a conservative way when they were elected. So and I've I've you know, I've, I've noticed that with conservative politicians when they start to kind of retreat or clutch their pearls or, or you know worry about things that they're saying or try to have more kind of green positions on things now you look that's a recipe for disaster and they'll be out the door at the next election for doing that you've absolutely nailed it because that's exactly what we are seeing as, as soon as our, our liberal politicians go left they get kicked out of elections because if you're going to be a lefty the public's going to vote for the one who's going to give them the most free stuff which is always going to be the labor party but as a YouTuber, your, your platform and your career at the moment depends upon the social media uh, platform maintaining its ability to function like a business. What terrifies me is the notion of government regulation 
that's been proposed by the Liberal Party and by ministers who, by and large, don't appear to understand social media. They think it begins with their newsfeed and ends with their Facebook page. They don't have a clue how social media works. And they've seen the problem, and that is that Silicon Valley, a private business, is owning the social narrative and owning the online forum. That's definitely a problem. But my argument is that the solution to that problem is not the government taking control of speech online. And uh, I'll tell you what my solution is after you have a go, but does it worry you when the government thinks, oh, yeah, we'll take control of the social media narrative, particularly if the Labour Party get in control of that? God, it's tough, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> I think um, in terms of corporate monopolies, we've never seen anything like big tech. We've never seen anything like just the sheer magnitude of these corporations and the amount of power they have to um, influence public opinion um, and influence it either way, whether it's by, um, you know, promoting left-wing stuff or antagonising conservatives enough by banning them and demonising them enough that it actually incites a kind of conservative wave. But either way, it's, it's, it's big tech doing it. Um, I mean, we saw with, you know, Hunter Biden pre just before the US election, there was that big story about about, you know, Hunter's laptop, um, that you you could not eat, not only could you not retweet it or post it on Twitter, but you know, you remember this, you couldn't even send the link in a private message to other people on Twitter. So handily did they suppress that story. And there was there was some sort of poll that came out after the election was that like a reasonable percentage of Biden voters said that had they known about the Biden, the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, they would not have voted for Joe Biden. Like and, and that is that is uh, just one example of how big tech is able to influence these narratives and and, and swing elections one way or the other. Um, so obviously something needs to be done to rein that in because we can talk all we want about, you know, uh, you know, free and private enterprise, and I believe in the, the free market, you know, government interference, student interference, big private corporations, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But that's kind of 20th century thinking. Um, we've never seen anything like big tech. So perhaps we need a kind of brave new set of digital rules for this brave new digital world. But having said that, um, as, as you said, you know, what if the Labor government... <laughs> gets in and suddenly has control of the big tech, um, you know, juggernaut. They're not going to mind at all with the type of stuff that gets promoted on Twitter. Um, so well, I, don't like this idea of, I don't like the idea of big corporations having control of, of the public square, but I hate the idea of politicians having control over it as well. So I'm actually interested to hear what you think on it, like whether it's a matter of breaking up the companies or, you know, what 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 would what solution would you have? Because I can't sort of think of one. Well, I've been writing about this for a long time because I noticed it was going to happen about 10 years ago. So a long time before everybody else clued into it, I was watching this go forward because my family's been in the software industry. My father was one of the first builders of computers. So this has sort of been my, my life. I design AI databases. And uh, the problem of big tech, it's actually the same problem of the Catholic Church or even the Protestant church over the politics of Europe during the Middle Ages and everything, it was the same kind of power. They could remove people, they could control businesses, they could control governments. So we have actually seen this environment before in human history. The difference now is that it's a private enterprise. Um, it's a collection of oligarchs that are, are controlling our narrative online. But interestingly, you're right, you don't want politicians to control speech because that's when you end up in communism and it's not, it's not going to work out. It never, ever works well.
Yeah. Our laws are actually good. We do have working laws to control social media. So we have the most important law, which is an antitrust law, which prohibits businesses from colluding to er eradicate not only individuals, but also other companies who are coming up as market competition. Um, so when Patreon was basically blocked out um, because some social medias lent on Amazon to remove their servers, allegedly, uh, that's the kind of thing where there is a law that governs that behaviour. You've already pointed out that we have anti-monopoly laws to break up companies that are acting as um, outrageously influential monopolies in the world. And we have Section 230 immunity with its Good Samaritan clause, which is poorly understood by the media. I have to say, whenever you hear even Trump saying, oh, we need to get rid of Section 230 immunity, no, that's a misunderstanding of what it does. If you get rid of Section 230 immunity, you wipe out hundreds of thousands of small online businesses that have nothing to do with the problem you're trying to solve with Silicon Valley. What you do do is you um, have to start prosecuting businesses who break these three fundamental laws. And what we are seeing is there's not a problem in our law. We don't need new laws. We need politicians who are prepared to actually enforce the law on these powerful figures. And my suspicion is the reason that American politicians are not enforcing their existing laws is because they find it useful to have a private business who can control the political narrative. And because the press doesn't care, they aren't calling out politicians for manipulating the law and these private businesses for their own political gain. Mm. That makes a lot that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, particularly when we, you talk about American politicians, I mean, there is so much of the Republican Party, for instance, that hates Trump. Um, and I didn't realize the extent of how many rhinos there actually are in the Republican Party until the U.S. election happened. And I was I was quite perfectly disgusted uh, with the behavior of, of just so many of them and just just the rank. Uh, disloyalty and willingness to self-destruct because they didn't like Trump really, which all comes down to the fact that sometimes he put rude things on Twitter. Like, you know, that's it. But on a, on a serious note, it's that kind of, they call it like the red half and the blue half of the uniparty, you know, it's that estab those establishment politicians. Um, so even though, you know, Trump and all of them, they, they can make a lot of noise about, you know, Facebook and Zuckerberg and free speech and stuff. Like I realized that after the election, they were perfectly happy to have, you know, the Hunter Biden laptop story suppressed, for instance. They're perfectly happy, these these um, establishment Republicans, uh, to have, you know, a left-wing anti-Trump narrative on Twitter and on Facebook, et cetera, because they want to maintain the kind of establishment status quo. And I would hazard a guess that a lot of establishment Republicans are perfectly happy and indeed probably in some cases prefer being in opposition rather than being in power because it means they still get to sit there and collect the cushy, you know, six-figure salary but not have any of the responsibility and all they have to do is throw things from the peanut gallery um, and they've kind of, they've done their job. Um, so those are some very, very good points um, you raised, particularly about Section 230. I mean, I don't know as much about software as, as you. That's really interesting um, about your background. So thank you for sharing all of that with me. Um, Trump, God love him, and you know how much I love Trump. We all, all know how much I love Trump. When he was talking about getting rid of Section 230, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, 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 not the right way to go about things. But um, I, yeah, I don't know what we do about it. Maybe, maybe we break up the companies, but as you say, maybe politicians just need to enforce their laws a lot better than they do. And maybe the media is not going to call them out on it because they're happy for the laws not to be enforced as well. 
Um, so maybe the public needs to start making some noise about it, but that would take public knowledge and most people don't know about this stuff. So it's an unbelievably difficult thing to solve. Yes, well, uh, Silicon Valley is essentially a tame press gallery. That's why they like it. They can pay Silicon Valley and then they get the results they want and it's immense uh, political power if you've got social, uh, Silicon Valley in your pocket. So I can't see either side of politics deciding to go against Silicon Valley while ever it can win them elections. And that is a big problem and it's the if the press don't do something about it, we're going to be really, really screwed. Um, I'll ask you one final question before we get to our final one at the end. Um, and that's because most of your work online, you really do have a focus on social justice politics. And often from a humorous perspective, you're very funny. You have an alter ego that you often bring out to uh, ridicule, <laughs> ridicule the left and have a look. What is it particularly about the lunacy of social justice that inspires you to make so many videos on it? I don't like people who lie and I don't like people who insist that they're good people but are actually complete jerks um, and I find that social justice warriors are liars and also they insist relentlessly that they are good people while at the actually being complete jerks so also they say stuff that's hilarious and really easy to make fun of because it's a lie and false um, and it's really easy to make fun of people who are irritatingly self-righteous. So, it, and also, I hate hypocrites. And we know for all the reasons you have, and I talked about earlier with you know how they treat conservative women, they are the biggest hypocrites you will find. So roll all of that into one. And just from from my perspective, like the type of stuff that I like to comment comment on and write about, it's literally the perfect content fodder. Like you, you could not give me better content fodder than SJWs, both in terms of the lack of like the the lack of factual accuracy, uh, the the self righteous pontificating, um, the the rank hypocrisy, and just the absurdity. Um, of some of the claims they make it, it's it's like it's it's the perfect ingredients for like the perfect youtube social justice video cake like you, you literally could not give me better content fodder it's also endless there is no end to the amount of social justice lunacy that you can have every week i wake up and go i thought we'd reach peak lunacy i can't even i have to double check every <laughs> single thing that comes online because I have no idea if I'm being trolled or if it is real. And most of the time, it's actually real. I mean, very yeah. rarely do I delete a tweet and be like, sorry, guys, I got I got dragged in by that one. Norman's like, no, 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 that that was real. That happened. Yeah. Well, the, the Coca-Cola or be less white thing, that could have been a joke, but it wasn't. It was real. It was actually, and then you, you go into LinkedIn and that, that Robin D'Angelo Be Less White course was on LinkedIn that you could you could literally download for your business. Like I was like... Surely that can't be real. But then I was like, no, nope, no, nope, that that that's real. The material's online for anyone to access. It's it's just insane. Like as you say, they are they are the gift that keeps on giving. There is never an end to it. There is always something to talk about. Oh, I know. I mean, and some of the people online as well. You think they can't be real? That can't be. I know. They can't be. <laughs> but they are. They are, and they just continue to give. It's sensational. <laughs> Best entertainment you'll ever get is just to go online and just troll through some of the woke stuff. You will not stop crying with laughter. Mm -hmm. As long as they don't get into government, I think we'll be okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so the fun question we always ask at the end of Curtain Call is uh, if you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, well, I had a, uh, I thought about this question and it came to me 
quite quickly. I've all, I've said for a number of years now that if I could, you know, have dinner with anyone living or dead, it would be the infamous infamous romantic poet, uh, Lord George Gordon Byron. Uh, not only because I am a, a massive fan of his beautiful poetry, but I am a obsessed with his his life and the way he conducted himself he was a, a scandalous man who had torrid affairs with with an awful lot of people um and he he lived he was a real supernova sort of burn bright die young and he was uh, I, I he was unbelievably um radical in his day and i think he just wrote some of the most beautiful poems ever and i think he'd be hilarious company although i think i might have to watch myself because he was understandably a bit of a cad and a bit of a rake. So, so long as I kept my wits about me, I think that would be an interesting dinner to have. Yes, I didn't say who would be your Tinder date. That was not the question. <laughs> yes, yes, I'd have to draw I'd have to draw up some boundaries very clearly at the beginning of the meal. I'd have to say, you know, my lord, I'm engaged. I'm not interested. I just want to hear about your poems and, and see what he would do with that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Curtain Call, Daisy. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really, really fun. I'm very glad we could do this. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.